So we'll go ahead and open up your Bibles to um, Isaiah 45. And we're going to look at verses 9 through 13 tonight. And tonight's text um, is shorter, you know, than, than normal. You know, we, it's only five verses. But I chose to just deal with this by itself because it occupies an important place in Isaiah 45. It occupies a transitionary place between the Cyrus proclamation and then the declaration of God as the only true Savior. And what we have here in this section is really a disputation. It's the Lord engaging in a disputation with um, those people that were in exile that took umbrage with him uh, using Cyrus as the means of their deliverance. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. And um, really at the heart of it is uh, the essential requirement that we trust God in all things, whether they make sense to us or not, right? So let's look at this together. This is the Word of God, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dig into this together tonight. The Lord says through Isaiah, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, The Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him. Ask of me things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. Not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are worthy to be trusted. And how foolish it is of us to mistrust you. How foolish it is of us, Father, to doubt or to, um, you know, take some kind of offense at the way that you act and the way that you move, both for your glory and for the good of your people. Lord, what foolishness is, is it on our part to think that we know more than we do? And to be able to think then that we can sit in judgment on all of your ways. Lord God, you do all that you do first in accordance with your will, in accordance with your desire. You sit enthroned in the heavens. You do all that you please. But Lord, you have already gone on record as doing, as, as, as desiring that which is best for your covenant people. That acting according to the covenant promises that you have made to us, um, to make of us your own. Lord God, to... Uh, give to us eternal life um, and to experience that eternal life here in, in these days and, and then in the life that in the ages that are to come. And so, Lord God, I pray that as we were looking at this text tonight, Father, you would use these words and use this disputation to once and for all do away with any doubt in our hearts regarding your character and your purpose in the things that you do. I pray, Father God, that you would use these words to engender a deepened faith in you that cannot be shaken and, and cannot be moved. That, Lord God, we would just trust in you. We trust in you in, in, in the big things, in the, in the macro things, in the national things, in the international things. And we would trust you in the most intimate of details in our own lives. Help us to do that. Help us to do that, Lord God. I pray that you'd give me strength by your spirit right now. I pray, Father God, just give me energy to be able to um, teach this text faithfully and accurately. Make my mind sharp, um, I pray. And I pray that you just 
bless the people that are here tonight. And Father, that you would uh, feed them with the manna of your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this text that we're looking at tonight, beloved, kind of builds off the previous sections, you know, that we've been looking at over the last few weeks, right? And those texts, you remember, describe Cyrus in a couple of ways. They describe Cyrus as being God's shepherd, and they describe Cyrus as being God's anointed, right? And specifically chosen by God for the deliverance of these Jewish exiles that are in Babylon. And like we said, those terms, those terms specifically, shepherd and anointed one, they would have been shocking to hear used of a pagan king like Cyrus. Like that, that just didn't follow in the Jewish mindset. They were words that were reserved for Jewish kings. They were reserved for priests. They were reserved for prophets in their fulfillment of their God-ordained responsibilities. And so to hear them applied to Cyrus would have been jarring to Jewish sensibilities. It would have been, it it would have just been jarring. I I don't know how else to say it, right? To think that Cyrus had been specifically chosen and empowered by God to carry out the purposes of rescuing the exiles of Babylon. Like, come on, man. And yet, you know what? That is exactly the case. God's going to raise up Cyrus to accomplish the repatriation of the Jewish exiles according to his own purpose and his own plan. In fact, God himself, back in verse 8 of this very chapter, celebrates it, right? Remember, look back at that for a second. Shower, O heavens, God says, from above, and let the earth, or the cloud, I mean, rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. So God himself is delighted in the way that he is working in choosing this pagan King Cyrus to be the deliverer of the the Jewish exiles that are in Babylon, right? But reading between the lines here, what should have been a source of great news and comfort wasn't universally received by the Jewish exiles with gladness and celebration, okay? It wasn't. In fact, you got to remember, again, that the exiles in Babylon were a mixed group, right? You had one group, that were, you know, they were the faithful remnant. They were the group that, that embraced the promises of God with faith and with hope. They were the guys that were characterized by faith in God. But there was also a group that remained sort of indignant, that remained unbelieving in the face of God's promises. They strove against the words of God. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that they didn't want to be delivered. It's not that they didn't want to be repatriated. It's not that they didn't want to be rescued out of their crummy situation, right? They did. But the issue for them was the way in which God would accomplish that rescue. It was troubling to them. You know, it wasn't through the means of a Davidic king. It wasn't through the means of even like raising somebody up from the exiles to lead like a Spartacus rebellion against the Babylon, Babylonians. Instead, it was, it was using this pagan king. That was beneath them. That was beneath them as the people of God, right? And so they took issue with the fact that, that God would deliver them from captivity to a pagan nation by the hand of yet another pagan king, right? It didn't fit their notions of what was proper, Right? Because really the truth was this, if and when God decided to deliver the exiles from Babylon, they had hopes of a second exodus. That's what they were hoping for. They were hoping for a second exodus, you know, complete with miracles and manna and another Moses-like figure, you know, and they weren't getting that. That's not what God was giving to them. 
The Cyrus solution didn't fit the bill. It wasn't the rescue they envisioned. And so what we have in these five verses is really a disputation between the Lord and the disillusioned and the disgruntled exiles in Babylon that were striving with God regarding the way in which he would rescue them. And the initial word from God is is pretty pointed. It's, woe to those who strive with me. What are you thinking? Right? Look at what he says again. Pick it up in verse 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Now here's what's going on here. The heart of these words from the Lord really is this, is who are any of these exiles to dispute with the Lord regarding the way in which he would provide their deliverance from exile? Who are they to have any opinion in the matter at all? Who are they to question God? Right? Who are they to question his, his means, gracious means of deliverance? I mean, after all, they were responsible for the condition that they were in. They had no power to change it, no matter how much they wanted to try. And they didn't deserve God's favor in the least. And yet, and yet, is this not a proof of human fallenness? They had the audacity to question the way in which God would provide their rescue. It's ludicrous. Think about it like this. Imagine, imagine somebody is, you know, stranded at sea, right? They're drowning. It's a great, there's a great storm out there. It's in the middle of the night, you know, and the Coast Guard gets called out to go and rescue this dude. So they, they get on their, you know, clipper ship and they go out there and, and they find the guy in the middle of the water and without any sort of, you know, warning at all, the rescue swimmer dives in and he grabs the guy kind of roughly around the collar of his neck and he yanks him towards the boat and he throws him up on the deck, right? And then the guy's so just bothered about the way in which he'd been rescued because he th- thought it should have been done in the proper way, you know, with a dinghy and with a, you know, with a, with one of those life, uh, life rings, you know, he wanted it to be done in the, the, the proper way. How dare you save me in a way that wasn't authorized? <laughs> it's that kind of foolishness here. And God points it out here in these, in these words. You know, we're familiar with these words, aren't we, from our study of Romans? Aren't we the whole clay and the potter thing? We are. And you remember, Paul quoted Isaiah in dealing with the human objection to God's sovereignty and salvation, right? To to the way in which God provides salvation for fallen sinners. He anticipated that mankind would have trouble with it. So Paul quotes from Isaiah to say, hey, who are you to even question God, right? And here it's much the same. God employs these words through Isaiah to deal with the human obstinance towards God's choice of of Cyrus to deliver them. And the point is clear here, isn't it? Who are you to argue with God? What place do you have, right? In comparing a clay pot with a human potter, what's God emphasizing there? Here's what he's emphasizing. He's emphasizing the vast difference between creator and creature, right? The very idea that a clay pot would argue with its potter over the way that he fashions and makes it would be absurd, wouldn't it? Like, this isn't beauty and the beast, man. This is reality. Clay pots don't talk. How much more then is a man who's been created from the dust of the earth, arguing with the one who formed him and gave him the breath of life? We are as different from God as the lifeless clay is from the potter. Isn't that true? Then the second comparison It's a little hard to get from the way that it's translated here, but the idea here, it envisions the folly of a child 
arguing with his parents over his conception and his birth. Kids will do that sometimes, and they get in trouble, and you spank them. I wish you never had me. <laughs> but you'll hear that kind of you'll hear that kind of dumbness, right? Right. So again, it's foolishness, right? God is able to 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 carry out His purposes with His without His creatures' acknowledgement or their will or or their understanding, and His purposes, right? They stem from His love and His compassion for them, for their good, whether they understand it or not. And that's the whole thing that God is getting across here. Like, what are you doing arguing with me? First of all, you have no place, no standing to argue with me. And second, do you really think I don't have your good at heart? And there's a lesson for us, I think, here in two ways. First, it's this. Who is any sinner to quibble with God over the way that he provides rescue for anyone? Right? Consider the Pharisees. Was that not their problem? Consider the Pharisees and their continued opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about them. They continually attacked his parentage. They, they were continually attacking the truth that he taught. They attacked the source of the miracles that he performed. They attacked his confession that he and the Father were one. They took umbrage with his demand that sinners believe in him for eternal life. You know, and they did so why? Because they could not accept his evaluation of them as sinners and his rejection of their imaginary righteousness, right? They could not accept that he was the son of the living God, that he was the promised Messiah because he did not fit their preconceived notions of a military and a political deliverer that the nation deserved, right? Because in truth, they couldn't deal with him being born or being raised actually in a backwater city like Nazareth, and not being formally trained. But the big issue was they couldn't come to grips with the idea that they needed the forgiveness of sins more than they needed political deliverance. And so, they certainly could not envision salvation coming through this one whom they despised. And even after Christ's crucifixion and His resurrection from the dead, the vast number of them remained unbelieving. To them, a crucified Messiah was repulsive, right? Or consider modern man and his response to the gospel, right? I mean, you know what it is. He thinks it's all foolishness, right? Because the gospel doesn't take into account man's greatness or his capabilities. All the wonderful things we're able to do. It doesn't give due deference to our goodness. It offends our natural sensibilities and the pride of fallen humanity. The very thought that what we deserve is what Christ endured on the cross... The full fury and wrath of God and the humiliating criminal's death is offensive to the core. We're not that bad. We can save ourselves. We're improving. <laughs> right? We can do better. We're wise in our own eyes. And so, fallen man takes umbrage against this way of salvation. It's like Paul wrote, where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Hasn't God made fools of all these people? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through 
wisdom, its wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks demand wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Amen? But even think about modern Christians who quibble and argue against the idea of God's sovereignty, who create fictions like, well, God is only sovereign up until our sovereignty begins. That God is so sovereign, He made us sovereign. Like, what are you talking about? What kind of lunacy is that? Right? People that, that, that quibble against the necessity of God's sovereign grace in election, the, the abject helplessness of man to even respond to the truth apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, who try to preserve some thought of man contributing in some way to his salvation, even if it's just itty-bitty and tiny and just almost infinitesimal. infinitesimal right? You know what that is? That's contending with God. That's, that's not what I mean. Oh, I know you don't mean that, but that's contending with God. Striving with God in His revealed Word, right? Arguing with God over the way that He supplies salvation. All those things, all of them, God, all this brings God's declaration of woe. It's a declaration of judgment. Or as John Oswald calls it, the, the cry at a funeral, right? This is serious. Who is any sinner to dictate to God? That's the point here. In fact, I love what John Oswald says about this. He's, he puts Oswald, Oswald, I'm not sure how you pronounce his last name. We'll go with Oswald. He puts it like this. To disagree with God's ordering of one's life or one's world is not merely a matter of preference or outlook. At bottom, it is a refusal to let God be God. It's a reversal of roles in which the creature tries to make the creator a servant to carry out the creature's plan. To be sure, not every question of God's work or ways constitutes such a rebellion. Nevertheless, a persistent refusal to allow God to be God and to establish the terms of our relationship with Him will result in a funeral. Our own. He's right. second lesson is this. Who are we as God's people to strive against His providences in our lives in order to bring about His purposes and our eternal spiritual good? Right? Who are we to argue against God's providences in our lives? Yes, some of them are hard. Some of them are exceedingly glad. Some of them are difficult. Some of them are, you know, there are trials and there are hardships that God uses to refine our faith, to purify our walk. To wean us from worldliness and sin. To force us to trust exclusively, exclusively in Him. But we don't have the right to stand in judgment on the Lord for the outworking of His sovereign purposes in our lives. We don't have the right to say, you know what? That's not how I would have done it. To contend with God and with His sovereign and His good design in our lives is to claim to be wiser than God is. To strive against the Lord and contend that he may have done things in another better way is to forget ourselves, man. And to forget who God is. It's to forget our place and His place. We are sinners and He is the holy God in whom there's no trace of sin or wrongdoing. God has never done us wrong. And that leads to the next section. Look at it. 
God has to give us this continual reminder. It seems like we need it all the time. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me. He says, Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed Him, Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. As the Lord continues in this disputation, notice what he does. He reminds them, he reminds us, yet again, for the umpteenth time, who he is. And over and over, we see he's got to do this. We need to be reminded of this truth continually and often pointedly. And he uses here this almost the same recipe that he uses in other places. Notice what he does here, right? He says, first, thus says the Lord, right? He's Lord. He's Yahweh. Great I am. Self-existent one, the one who keeps covenant promises, right? Who keeps faith with his people. And we're to read that and realize that by contrast, Israel has been revealed to be a nation of covenant breakers, right? That he's the Holy One of Israel. That means he's righteous in all his ways. He's perfect in purity. And by contrast, well, we're sinners. And all that that implies. And all that that entails, right? And then he reminds us he's creator. He's the one who formed Israel. He's the one who made the earth. And he's the one who created man on it. And as creator, he owns everything. And he has the right to dispose of all things according to his design and his desire. And so therefore, God never oversteps his bounds in the way that he deals with us. God is never intruding in a place where he does not himself already belong. We're his creatures. And we have no case against the God of glory in his mastery in our lives. In fact, Jerry Bridges puts it like this. He says, there is the essence of God's so- this is the essence of God's sovereignty. His absolute independence to do as he pleases and his absolute control over the actions of all his creatures. No creature, person, or empire can either thwart his will or act outside the bonds of his will. No plan of God can be thwarted. When he acts, no one can reverse it. No one can hold back his hand or bring him to account for his actions. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, and works out every event to bring about the accomplishment of his will. Such a bare, unqualified statement of the sovereignty of God would terrify us if that were all we knew about him. But God is not only sovereign, he is perfect in love and infinite in wisdom. And therefore, you know what? That ought to shape the way in which we approach God, shouldn't it? Notice what he says here. The Lord says, ask of me things to come. Ask of me things to come. And the implication is, don't tell me. Don't dictate to me. Don't command me. Ask of me. Ask of me. And that God would invite us to ask... And then that he would answer is a remarkable grace, beloved. It really is. God's under no obligation to explain his ways to us, is he? No. He's not. He says, will you command me concerning my children, the work of my hands? To do so would be profound pride. It would be, it's an arrogance that's born out of ignorance, right? It's to forget our place and think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. In fact, can I tell you what? Everything that we know of the Lord and everything that we know of His ways is a gift of His revelation to us, isn't it? It's a kindness given to us that we don't deserve. Have you ever sat and really thought about that? There's so much that we take for granted. 
that really is a gift. How would we ever know anything apart from God's revelation? How would we never know, ever know anything about his character in a personal way? How would we know of sin or its entrance into the world or the reason that the world is the way that it is? How would we ever know God's purpose to redeem sinners unless he tells us? How would we understand, how could we possibly understand his sovereign plan to redeem sinners in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ? How could we understand the spiritual significance of Christ's life and his death? How can we know the order and the aspects of salvation, what it means to be born again, what it means to have saving faith, what sanctification is, the meaning of grace, the advance of the kingdom, and the end of days? I could go on and on and on. What would we possibly know? Nothing. And so then who are we to answer back or dispute with God? It's just dumb. He's the Lord. And, and all that he does in nations in our own individual lives is right, and it's his prerogative. And the good that we receive is a gift of his grace. And so again, God closes this section by once again stating his purpose with Cyrus and the nation of Israel. Look what he says. Verse 13, he says, I have stirred him up in righteousness and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. The hymn here is Cyrus. God has stirred up Cyrus for this purpose, right? To rescue, to restore, and to repatriate the exiles to the promised land, right? And God has done so in righteousness. Now, I want to make sure we understand that. The way the word that righteousness is used here is not in the idea of like, you know, um, moral obedience to the commands of God. You know, that's not what we're talking about. When he talks about righteousness here, it's the idea of that, that what the Lord is doing is right and it's good and it's beyond any accusation of impropriety or any, like, it's beyond any question at all. That's the idea, that what he's doing is absolutely right. And, and, there, and there's no way to argue with him at all. Like, again, you don't have grounds to. It's part of that universal plan that's going to end in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells and it pleases God. That's it. And then this, that God will lead and empower Cyrus to do exactly what God has chosen him to do. He'll set in motion the rebuilding of Jerusalem. He'll set my exiles free. I love that. God, again, emphasizing his ownership. Right, And just so we understand it, the Lord makes clear that Cyrus will do as the Lord commands, not for price or reward. Well, now, we saw earlier that there's some price and reward that he's going to gain, right? Well, yeah. But the point that God is making here is that whatever Cyrus gains in a temporal or an earthly sense, power and riches, those things are fading and they are ultimately inconsequential. The seminal reason, the pivotal and the prime reason that Cyrus will act and do what he does is because God has commanded it and Cyrus is an instrument in the hands of the sovereign Lord. God has commanded it and it shall be done and Cyrus hasn't quibbled about it. He hasn't argued about it. What, Lord, you want me to deliver Israel? He just does it. Because God commands it. What do we say to these things? You know, when you read this kind of stuff, right? What do we say? I think the words of Romans 11, chapter, or Romans chapter 11, verse 33 to 36 are completely appropriate. Aren't they? Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. That's beyond finding out. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So here's kind of the final of all this. When we look at this text, the real question that we've got to face is this. Do we have faith in the Lord? Do we really trust him and trust in his divine purposes? Do we have a wholehearted trust in God? Completely and fully that what he does in my life and in the big picture is really for his glory and it is ultimately for my good and I can rest myself in him. That's the question because here's the deal. Despite whatever rationale or reasoning we might use, right? To quibble with God is unbelief. It really is. To argue with God is unbelief. And the fundamental question for all of us is really the same. Do we believe the Lord? Do we trust Him in good times and in difficult ones? Do we trust Him through health and sickness? Do we trust Him in times of strife and peace when we have much and we've got little? Do we trust God? Do we trust Him implicitly in all things? Even when we do not understand. Do we trust God? I'll close with these words from Charles Spurgeon. He said, God is wonderful in his design and excellent in his working. Believer, God overrules all things for your good. The needs be for all that you have suffered has been most accurately determined by God. Your course is all mapped out by your Lord. Nothing will take him by surprise. There will be no novelties to him. There will be no occurrences which he did not foresee and for which therefore he has not provided. He has arranged it all. And you have but to patiently wait and you shall, shall sing a song of deliverance. Your life has been arranged on the best possible principles so that if you had been gifted with... I love this part. Listen to this. So that if you had been gifted with unerring wisdom... You would have arranged a life for yourself exactly similar to the one through which you have passed. Let us trust God where we cannot trace Him. I believe that the happiest of all Christians and the truest of Christians are those who never dare to doubt God, but take His word simply as it stands and believe it and ask no questions, just feeling assured that if God has said it, it will be so. There is no more blessed way of living. And the life of faith based upon a covenant-keeping God, to know that we have no care for He cares for us, that we have no fear except to fear Him, that we need have no troubles because we have cast our burdens upon the Lord and are certain that He will sustain us. Amen. Comments, thoughts, questions, anything quickly before we spend some time in prayer. Yeah. Yeah.
Oh, it's very weighty. It's what gives him right as God over all things because he's creator. If I make it, I own it. It reminded me sometimes of, too, when we pray, <coughs> we pray with a solution in mind. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. Sure. Yeah. So, oh, my God, I, I, I pray for this outcome, but boy, I'd like it to be worked out in this means, in this way, you know? And I'd like the dinghy and the life ring and the yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, rather than the heart being what you say so and giving thanks in all circumstances. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Knowing his will is perfect, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, and but there's also the secret like in Deuteronomy where it talks about the secret like secret will of God, yeah. Mm-hmm. He thinks it himself and but, we, okay. but we know yeah, we know what we know, we, we give him. thanks for what and we can trust him with the secret part. Yeah. We're good. Yeah. yeah. In, in some trials, at least in my experience, it's far more easy to trust that it's for his glory than it is for your good. good. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Sure. But the two are so indispensably intertwined, right? Verse eleven kind of says this prohibition against striving against the Lord doesn't negate dialogue. Right, right, yeah. Ask me. Yeah, ask of me. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. You don't let it out and tell him, even if it's not in a perfect way, you know, it'll grow. Yeah. Be careful when we keep short of those. Amen to that. That's true. That's fact. All right. Let's pray. John Klein, will you pray for us, please?
things in our life, we will be free to come to your throne of grace, which is just a privilege. Father, in the process, we will not ever question the righteousness and the holiness and the goodness of the actions that we take. Father, I pray that you would uh, just let these words stick with us, that uh, your spirit will give us an understanding, and these words will change our lives. Father, I thank you for this day. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.